the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, questions about the Bible, questions about anything going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you need to do is to call us, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and everything else will be hands-free. You'll be safe, and we'll get your questions. It's Tuesday, so we don't have anything going on, so let me get right to the questions that have been sent while we await your phone calls. Our first question is from Dewey. Um, He says, hello, Pastor Ron. I'm in the book of Joshua, and in this book, the city of Jericho is mentioned quite a bit. I was curious about the history of this city, and so I googled it. I realized it's now a Palestinian city in the West Bank. I also saw that Israel had control of the city, and in 1984, turned it over and gave administrative control to the Palestinians by the Oslo Accord Agreement. Why would Israel give up their historical land that was deeded to them by God? Where does, uh, where did the Palestinians come from? And does the Palestinian people have a biblical and historical claim to the city? Um, let me sort of start at the end, Dewey. Thank you for the question. Um, um, the, the Palestinian people primarily came uh, from other Arab countries through Jordan. Jordan expelled them. And they end up um, establishing uh, their roots uh, prior to 1948 in um, in in the West Bank or West Side of Israel. Um, and and they've claimed, well, now it's ours. But the problem is, of course, God gave the the property to Israel. And when uh, Israel came back into their homeland, when Jews came back uh, into their homeland in 1948, of course, everything in the Middle East got turned. Um, the world would say upside down, we would say right side up. Now, a couple of things about this. Um, um, you know, it's amazing. Uh, Israel is such a small little piece of land, and yet there's been so much um, war, so much fighting over control of it. Uh, a lot of what happens on the West Bank, um, Bethlehem and other places on the West Bank, um, you know, the biblical warrant um, has always been that God gave the, that that land to Israel. Your question that can't be answered um, uh, without taking into account the spiritual realm is why would Israel give up their historical land? 
Um, you know, the whole world, ever since 1948 occurred, the whole world has been trying to get Israel to give away the land that God gave them and brought them back into. And I've said many times um, uh, to our church that the only way for peace ever to happen in the Middle East is for Jesus to return because the the Arabs aren't going to give up their claim to the land. They, they, they want no Jew in that land. They want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And, of course, there's no negotiating place. Still, um, you can go all the way back to Jimmy Carter. Uh, go back um, uh, a little less time to Yasser Arafat. There's always been... Uh, usually headed by the United States, this attempt to get Israel to give up their land to try to accommodate a two-state solution in Israel so the Palestinians can have their state and the Jews can have their state. And uh, for whatever reason, Israel and their leaders have accommodated those talks and they have tried over the years to... um, Accommodate the Palestinians in. Now, they, they know the Palestinians don't want them there. There's there's hatred between the two. Uh, but Israel wants to make peace in the world. You know, every generation of Israeli man um, has promised their children that they would see peace. And, of course, that's never happened. Uh, I have a friend, Ronnie Simon was his name, and uh, Ronnie is a tour guide there. He was also uh, in the, in the uh, high-ranking uh, Israeli uh, military officer. And uh, one day, I, he, he broke into tears in my office. He was just uh, explaining to me how he broke the promise to his daughter. He said, uh, I promised her there would be peace. And, and Pastor, he said, there's no peace. And that's been repeated over and over and over. So the Israeli people want peace. The leaders want peace. They're just going about it the wrong way. And so they negotiate land that only God can give away. And certainly God's not going to do that. All of this to say, Dewey, that there is no possibility of peace until Jesus returns and establishes complete control in the area again. And, of course, that's not going to happen until um, the time of the Great Tribulation. And then Jesus will establish his kingdom uh, in the millennial reign. Uh, Until then, there will be no peace. The other question you asked me was about uh, Jericho. You... Googled it and you'll get some information. But but I think the most important thing about Jericho is that it was the first battle. Jericho was the fortified city and it was the first battle inside uh, what was formerly Canaan. Um, um, it was a fortified city. It would appear that Israel, remember, they had been in the wilderness for 40 years. They had absolutely no war experience um, one side was tough, the other side wasn't, and it should have been a wipeout. The problem with that, of course, is that God was fighting for Israel. Uh, and same thing in 1967, the, the war in 1973. God is fighting for Israel against superior forces, and Israel always comes out on top. Well, way back in the Canaanite um, invasion, um, Jericho uh, there, there were easier battles, but God started them uh, at the toughest battle of all. And, of course, we know that God did all the fighting. That's why the walls of Jericho fell down. And, uh, Dewey, that's um, just God saying, as before and as it will always be, when I'm fighting for you, you cannot lose. And that's what's going on there. So it doesn't matter the Oslo agreements or any other agreements. It doesn't matter if we have a Republican president or a Democrat president. Uh, right now, the truth is the United States of America has failed miserably in its uh, support of Israel. And I think the world, and specifically the United States of America, is paying the price for that, Dewey. Good question. Thank you very, very much. You know, I once had a... Uh, a military officer, high-ranking military officer in the church. And he was explaining to me that his job was to uh, um, expedite peace in the Middle East. And he was stationed in the Middle East. And he said, so do you think we're ever going to do it? And I told him, and I thought he was aware of this. I just said, there will never be peace. Nothing you do will have any value at all because there will never be peace in the Middle East until Jesus returns. 
And he, he misunderstood me because he was really upset. He said, well, that means all the work that I'm doing is, has no value. It will, never have a, uh, it will never accomplish its purpose. And I, I told him, I said, you can't negotiate God's land away. You can't make God's people do what they don't want to do, what God doesn't want them to do. You just can't. And all we have to do is go back and read the biblical history. Every time Israel was overcome, it was because God was using a foreign nation as an instrument of judgment. I personally think, and this is just my opinion, everybody, my opinion is that the war that we're seeing just beginning in Russia, that war is going to uh, extend into um, Europe, certainly. And uh, I, I think Europe and then later the United States, uh, I think we're being judged by God. We're at the end of times. So good questions. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to line one, Tom from Lockhart. Tom, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thanks for talking to me. Um, I respect you immensely, your knowledge of the word. Uh, so oh, thank you. Since my my pastor is out of town. I, I was saved a year ago. I'm 67, but I was saved and baptized a year ago. Uh, I'm a Baptist, but we are doing an inter, inter-church movement with other local churches, some charismatic, uh, based on the commonality of our uh, our acceptance of Christ as our Savior. You know, those primary issues there. So the question that I have is I've been, I've been, I have an older daughter. She lives uh, up in Maryland, and I have been communicating with her for some time now. Uh, you know, just sharing with her posts that I'll make on Facebook about scriptural things. Mm-hmm. And um, she informed me last night that she was being baptized at a church up there, and I, I was, I was overjoyed. Okay, now let me preface this: that back in my younger days, I was a Jehovah's Witness. And I mm-hmm. left when I was 30, 67 now, so that was 37 years ago. And it took me a long time and some isolation and reading the Bible to finally realize that I needed a personal relationship with God. Hmm. And uh, so I found a home here, and, I, and I, as I explained to the pastor, I, when I got baptized, I said, I, you understand, I'm not getting baptized as a Baptist. I'm getting baptized to show that I give everything to Christ. And he said, absolutely. So we're good on that. Well, anyway, so she wanted me to attend. She wants me to attend on Facebook. Uh, and um, and then she gave me a link, and, I, and I'm i looking for advice how to handle it. So, so I followed the link, and it is the United Church of Christ, and uh, I know nothing about them. So I follow the link, and the first thing I see across the doorway on their Facebook page is a rainbow flag. So I started searching to try to find any reference to their primary focus is that Christ is the Savior. I mean, that is the, the primary issue here. And I, I couldn't find it. And so I'm overjoyed that she's uh, that she says that she's, you know, accepting Christ. She wasn't. She was with me when we were younger, and we were Jehovah's Witnesses. But when I left, she was like three or four, and and so that never became a thing for her. But she kind of remembers some of it. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's pretty much my question. I want to mm-hmm. say the right and uh, how Paul would put it. I, I want it to be with salt. Uh, but I also don't want to water things down if it's required. So yeah. I'll take any advice from you. Thanks, Tom. I'll, I, I think I hope I can help, and um, I feel for you. Before you, before I get into the, the circumstance that you're talking about, uh, I hope you realize how privileged you are. You said you're 67 now. You got saved a year ago. The percentage of people that get saved in their 60s is almost so small that it's invisible. So, so God's special portion of grace to you, Tom, is is an amazing gift for which you will be forever grateful. And it just happens so seldom. I have a man in my church. His name is Glenn, and he uh, he got saved about the same time you did, about a year ago. 
uh, and it may be a couple of months off, but he got saved about a year ago. And uh, and he's, you know, our age as well. And um, uh, boy, this guy is so full of the joy of the Lord and so enthusiastic about what God is doing. And he's dealing with a lot of things in his family uh, as well. So just bless the Lord that, that, that you're one of the very, very few who at your age um, responds to the truth of Jesus Christ. Regarding your daughter in the church, the United Church of Christ is not a good church. Um, she has not had the real Jesus preached to her. Um, uh, these uh, churches, uh, the Church of Christ, are often uh, focusing on young people, and their focus is um, uh, you've got to be baptized by them. Uh, no other baptism takes. Uh, but they're around college campuses, and they, they're, they're wildly popular among the young people. And, of course, they embrace these um, very liberal and non-biblical uh, lifestyles because that's what young people are taught to do. So, Tom, um, I think two things. One, your daughter needs an awful lot of prayer. Uh, she's a new believer, but, but she's, she's, she's not been introduced to the real Jesus. And the real Jesus is obviously what we need in order to be saved. So the, the best way to tell her is uh, exactly the way you explained it to me. I would say to her, I would say, I was so excited when you told me that you were getting baptized and you're accepting Jesus Christ. But I looked up your church, and your church is not a good, healthy church. They're presenting the wrong Jesus, same name, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And they they, they are advocating for um, uh, ungodly lifestyles. Lifestyles that the Bible is clear about. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And tell her, look, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not anti-anything. I'm just, I, I just want you to know who the real Jesus is because I want for you what God has done in my life. And Tom, this is a, a situation that, that parents are now going through more and more and more in these last days. So please be really, really direct with her in love. And I know you will. You love her. Um, but you gotta got to direct her to the real Jesus. you got to direct her to the real Jesus. I, I don't know if, you, if it was a question that you were asking about uh, the, the Baptist church that you're, you're going to. And there's nothing wrong with the Baptist church. Um, but if you are, uh, you know, when they say you're, you're working... Um, in connection with other churches, um, uh, that, that too can be dangerous. If it's an ecumenical movement and it's sort of all churches that name the name of Christ are the same, that's not true. So guard your faith. Um, um, direct the church. You, you know, speak to the pastors there and let them know that that these churches don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. Uh, if they're advocating ungodly lifestyles, and um, you, you need to you need to take a stand against that. And I, I just I honestly don't believe, and I realize in small places uh, like Lockhart, um, it's easier to get a bunch of people together and do stuff than it is to try to do it on your own. But you got to remain faithful to Jesus. You got to stand firm in the faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. And just uh, Tom, if you want some like-minded fellowship. Um, there is a Calvary Chapel in Lockhart. We ordained them, affiliated them about um, two years ago. Pastor Pete is the uh, the pastor there, and there's a bunch of really good guys at the church. So uh, it's a pretty healthy church. So God bless you. Congratulations on coming to faith in Christ at your age. That is an amazing gift from the Lord. I was a late in life Christian and I got saved just before I turned 40. So uh, God bless you for that, Tom. Thank you very, very much for the call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Annette. Uh, she says, I was doing my time with the Lord and was reading something uh, that caught my eye and I was confused. My question is, the night before in Matthew 26, uh, verses 18 to 28, Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal when he said, this is my body broken for you. 
But in John chapter 18, when the Jews take Jesus to Pontius Pilate, they say they can't go into the house because he was a Gentile, because they would become unclean and would not be able to eat the Passover meal. I'm curious why there were two different times of the Passover meal. Is it because Jesus knew that he was going to die and so they ate early. And then she says, I hope this makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And then a couple of things. One, we get really confused with the Passover because our day and the Jewish day was was different. Um, the, the Saturday, what we, we celebrate Saturday um, at midnight, um, um, but, but, but Jews, um, their day went from, from dusk a 24-hour day would be to dust the next day. So what we would consider Friday night, 6 o'clock-ish, is when the Sabbath would begin, and it wouldn't be over until 6 o'clock on, on the day we call Saturday. Uh, so what, what we've got there is just a little bit of confusing um, balancing uh, uh, clocks. So uh, here's what we have. There's no set time for the Passover meal. Now, Jesus knew, of course, that he was going to be uh, captured. He knew he was going to be uh, beaten. Uh, he knew that the, the following day uh, would be his um, um, crucifixion. And so he, he and his disciples would have eaten the Passover early on uh, the Sabbath, uh, but 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 Jesus, of course, had other things to finish. He knew he was going to die for the sins of the world. So in that situation, um, Annette, uh, it, it's probably just a timeline. The Jews went to Pilate. Uh, remember, they had this this uh, overnight um, illegal trial uh, of Jesus, and and uh, when they went to Pilate with their results. Um, they couldn't go inside because then they would have been rendered unclean for the Passover as well. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Let's go to Philip calling from Austin on line one. Philip, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Thanks for taking the Hi. call. My pleasure. Yeah, I listened to you for... Time flies, year, two, three, I don't know how long it's been, but <laughs> I've turned a lot of people on. <laughs> you know how time flies, right? Um, yeah, boy. And, uh, I've turned a lot of people on to you in Austin, so I just love the way you defend the word, and, and uh, I mean this in the nicest way, but unapologetically, you know, you don't uh, flavor it for the for the day. So I have a question, uh, but before I ask, there is a uh, extra-biblical writing by uh, The Gift of Belshazzar by um, Dixon Marlowe. And I would only say this beautiful, powerful punch uh, of faith, a very short read, and I would only mention it because I believe it's very consistent with the things you say. So, that said, some time ago, I caught the tail end of you talking about how our memories are forgotten in heaven, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I deal, despite my faith, with with a painful memory that I sure don't want to bring in the afterlife. And wondered if uh, you could talk through that in a way that only you seem to be able to, um, to give me that reassurance that that kind of pain that comes from that memory won't follow me into eternity. Yeah, Philip. God bless you. I've got I've got some of those memories myself. I, I've I've got things that I can never undo, and uh, I've I've uh, the, the way I treated Paula, the way I, I ignored my 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 two boys, uh, so many things that I have regret, and I don't I, I no longer do guilt, but I have no regret. But you know the things that I live with every day. When we get to heaven, we enter a whole new realm. And there's no pain. There's no sorrow. Uh, there'll be no more tears. So um, the only way, and this is sort of speculation on my part, and I just use the, 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 the same word all the time, it's like God gives us a brain swipe. And all of those painful memories are replaced um, in this whole new realm of, of spiritual life. All of those memories are replaced. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we live only in the present. When we get to heaven, we're only in the present. So there's no yesterday, there's no tomorrow. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll know people from our, our earth uh, experiences, but, but we'll, we'll all be in the now, 
in the in the present and and Jesus with him in the present there's nothing but fullness of joy and it's hard for humans to understand we're so connected to who we are um but but rest assured that all of the pain all of the sorrow all of the bad things that happen will be completely, completely wiped away. You know, Philip, I had a a, a woman not too long ago. Uh, I'd, I'd mentioned in a in a Bible study, maybe it was on this radio program. I'm not sure, but uh, about uh, abortion, and it was murder, and 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 this woman was completely undone because she just thought, well, well, I don't want to meet my uh, my daughter uh, in heaven, and and uh, I was able to talk to her and reassure her that when that happens. There will be nothing but joy, nothing but rewards, nothing but the presence of the Lord and the fullness of the Lord in ways that we in our flesh can't possibly understand. So uh, in eternity, you won't have to worry about any of those things. Yeah, your your past is as far as, as from you as east is from west, and that's pretty far, Philip. So God bless you. Thank you for the kind things that you said me. Lord bless you. We've got 30 minutes left in our Tuesday show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. I'm laughing. Philip said, time really flies. And, and boy, that last two minutes flew so fast, I almost wasn't ready to come back on the air. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question from our mobile app. Uh, Pastor on, if the rapture is before the final seven years, and it is, is there a conflict between Romans 11, 25 and 26, and Zechariah 13, uh, verses 8 and 9? Uh, I'm not really sure I understand why you would even see a conflict there, but let me sort of deal with these two passages of Scripture, and hopefully um, we can uh, we can clear this up for you. Um, Romans 11 Verse 25 says, and this is after talking about um, um, some Christians who are being a little arrogant um, regarding Jews. And he's saying, uh, no, you were kind of an olive tree that is wild by nature. Uh, the Jews are the natural olive tree. It's going to be easy to graft them back in. And then verse 25 says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. This is a reference to the the time that we live in. And and he's explaining uh, the the difficulty with Jews receiving Jesus Christ. Now remember, Jews were were Paul's enemy the entire time of his ministry. Uh, Romans chapter nine. When you get to Romans chapter nine, ten, and eleven, it's sort of a parenthetical insert. Those three chapters explaining um, God's goodness to Israel, uh, explaining why Israel uh, isn't the church and the church isn't Israel, and. Um, so what he what he's concludes is that this is by design. Um, Israel, the word means governed by God, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in comes in. What that means is that there is a finite or limited number of Gentiles that are going to be saved. And then we will go into the next phase where God once again turns his attention to Israel. So there is, uh, and I, I, I just think like this, I think in pictures, there's a countdown clock. And, and one day, and I think one day soon, we're going to get to that last Gentile who gets saved. 
And when that happens, I think then the rapture of the church is going to happen next. But there is a a limited number of Gentiles who are going to come into the family of God. Now, when he says in the next verse that all Israel will be saved, he's again using that wordplay. He's those who are governed by Israel in chapter 9 of Romans. He says, not all Israel is Israel. And so that's the reference here. He's saying that all who are truly Israel, governed by God, will be saved. That will happen after the rapture of the church. Now, Zechariah then talks about that time during the Great Tribulation. In fact, at the end of the Great Tribulation, where he says in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it, in the land. Uh, This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will be called, uh, they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. So that's a reference to the very end of of uh, the Great Tribulation, when Jesus comes back, we're going to, on Friday night, I'm going to be teaching Revelation chapter 18, the following Friday night, Revelation 19, when the Lord returns. And Zechariah's prophecy is about that moment when Jesus will appear, he'll set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and Jews will look upon the one they pierced. And again, this is Zechariah, another passage, chapter 12. Um, um, they will look upon his wounds and say, where did you get those wounds? And the answer will be, I got these wounds in the house of my friends. And he will show them. And, and this one-third, this remnant, remember God's always dealing with a remnant when it comes to Israel. This remnant will recognize uh, that that basically they killed God. Uh, that's what happened in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit fell and, and, and the, the people listening to Peter preach said, Brothers, what shall we do? In other words, you're right, we're guilty. What can we do? And Peter said to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So at the end of the Great Tribulation, of all of the Jews alive in Israel, they're going to see their Christ. Two-thirds of them still are going to reject him, and they're going to be swept away in judgment when Jesus comes with us. And then one-third is going to convert. And so that's those are the ones who are true Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. Though that one third is the remnant whose hearts seeking after God. They were wrong. Um, they they were like Paul. He said he was zealous, but ze- zealous apart from knowledge. And the same thing is going to be true. And uh, in that that day, uh, they're going to turn, and they will be saved. But but there, I don't see any conflict at all. Because one deals with the time that we live in, the church age, the full number of Gentiles has not yet come in, and then the Zechariah passage is after the rapture of the church. But make no mistake, the rapture of the church is going to happen before the Great Tribulation begins. Thank you for the question. Here's a tough question from Richard from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I was asked by another brother to give him advice on a marriage situation. He told me that when he and his wife argue, the wife would often leave and stay with a family member. He's so tired of her leaving and not tackling the trials. Her response is that she's spending time with Jesus and needs a day to cool off. He knows she does not respect him. At times he would go over to the family member's house to work on their issues, and there are times he lets her stay overnight. What should he do? Does he get her every time and bring her home? When do we let people leave? Do we ever allow people to leave? Thank you. Um, the reason I said this is a tough question, Richard, is because there's not a lot of detail. Um, th- this is a marriage in trouble, obviously. Um, if she does not respect him, he knows it. That situation needs to be worked on and it's the most important priority. I would, if if it was a friend of mine, I would say uh, this is a marriage that needs to get in pastoral counseling immediately. So wherever they go to church, they need to be in pastoral counseling. And I'm not talking about marriage counseling. I'm talking about pastoral counseling 
because this is a situation. I'll tell you exactly, Richard, what I would say to them if if uh, they came into my office and they described this. I would say to them at the very beginning, I would say, your marriage can be fixed very quickly or it can die very quickly. And what that depends on is whether or not you're going to do what God says to do. And if you do, things will get better. If you don't, things are going to get worse, and they're probably going to get worse quickly. And the reason I'm that direct is because I want them to understand that the problem, one, is fixable. There's hope. But two, it requires obedience to the Lord. I think sometimes we're trying to fix our marriage problems um, without regard to, to being obedient. And and um, she needs to repent of the fact that uh, she doesn't respect her husband uh, if there are reasons that are his fault for her lack of respect, and almost always, Richard, there are, then he needs to repent of those things. And and it's so easy if people will simply sit down with their Bible and, and in the counseling situation say, um, uh, this is what God says to do about this. If they'll do it, I promise you it always works. It always works. But now, she says she needs some time to cool off. Um, she needs counseling for her anger. Um, she needs to get all the way back to Genesis for this reason. A man will leave his wife and cling, or leave his family and, and mother and father and cling to his wife. And obviously, the same thing is true in reverse. So this is a problem of marriage. It is so problematic. It's not just when she loses her temper. It starts with that. I mean, the, the 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 most difficult line in your your email is, uh, he knows she does not respect him. That has to be resolved. Uh, I can tell you a couple of things that aren't happening in this family. They're not reading the Bible together. Um, I, I know that because if they were really reading the Bible together, the Holy Spirit would work through His Word. If they're both really Christians, and and uh, the Holy Spirit living in them would give them a different focus, a, a different desire. They'd realize that they're not pleasing to God. They're not honoring God in their marriage. And then they would realize that that's not a, a situation that God is ever going to let just sort of stagnate. They need the desire above all else to please God. Now, when I get in counseling situations like this, Richard, and, and people say, well, well, I just don't care about, about fixing my marriage, and they have a bunch of reasons— um, then I'm going to ask him, hey, well, well, how about getting saved? I want to be sure you're saved. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Second Corinthians 13.5 says, because th- th- this, is, this is a real problem. Generally speaking, I can say it's never good to leave. Um, there are times when I advise people to, to take a walk with Jesus, cool off, before you say and do things that you're going to regret and have to repent for. But, um, you know, there there are things that, that you really, really need to deal with, and you don't do that by running away from them. And in particular, if she runs away to her family members and she's saying horrible things about her husband, well, then, then that's a whole other issue of sin. So, Richard, without more information, what the source of her lack of respect uh, why they're constantly getting into arguments. Um, I think it's just something that they desperately, desperately need uh, pastoral counseling on. So um, advise that. And if they won't do it, Richard, uh, there's not much you can do but pray for them. Um, I, I want people to know right away, if you're not going to do what will ensure your walk with God being fruitful, then what do I have to I add to that? And so I tell them, look, I love you guys, and I'll pray for you. But um, if you're going to keep doing what you do, it's silly to think that things are going to get better. Give them hope. God can fix things, and we've seen him fix horrible situations. Richard, if if this were somebody in my church, um, I would instantly um, connect them with uh, another couple, and we've got many, many other couples who came from backgrounds like this, who, if you saw their marriages today, uh, you, you'd be amazed that there was ever a problem. So I'd want them to know that there's hope here. But hope requires obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And without obedience, there's no power. Um, so again, I wish I could be more specific, but that's just not quite enough information. Richard Pastoral Counseling. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Eddie. He said, Pastor Ron, who are the people who come out of the tombs in Matthew 27? Eddie, I don't know. We know they were righteous men from the past. We don't know whether they were righteous men who died recently or they were righteous men from old times who came out of the tombs. Uh, It would seem to me that, um, um, you know, some of the, the revered Jews um, not Moses, because his body wasn't found, but Abraham or Joseph or, or or David or any of the others. I don't know. And, and it's such a, so obscure. Only in Matthew's gospel do we have any record of this at all. And so it's just one of those things we have to wait to heaven until we have some clarity on. I do know this. They were very, very effective um, evangelists because... Uh, when they came out, and you know the disciples had to wait uh, fifty days from from the time of Jesus' resurrection until the day of Pentecost, um, we know that three thousand men, not not counting women and children, three thousand men got saved on that first day. So I am I'm absolutely certain, Eddie, that they had um, a, a huge impact, um, and and. Uh, people would have seen him and that would make you think about something. Well, I know that person's dead. Whether it was somebody who died recently or somebody who died a long time ago, um, that would have a real impact um, validating the truth of Jesus Christ. So we don't know who they are and nobody else even gives a peep about that situation. Only Matthew in his gospel. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Angela from our mobile app. Hi, Pastor Ron. I have five children. If all of my children don't make it to heaven, how would I not be sad in heaven? Will my child be wiped away from my memory? Angela, that was the first question I had from the phone today. Uh, And yeah, um, um, it's inconceivable to us that we could be joyful um, um, at all, or that heaven would be heavenly without those who are closest to us. So when I told the caller that uh, God will give us sort of a brain swipe, uh, that's exactly what he's going to do. And, and it's hard for us to understand because we live in a whole new realm. And the only thing that heaven will, will deal with is the present. Now, we will know people in heaven, of course, that we lived with or that we grew up with or that were, were key in our lives. But the uh, the people that didn't get saved, um, certainly there will be no memory of, of them, um, no more tears, no more sadness, no more pain. And it's inconceivable um, in, in, in the realm that we live in that that could even be possible. So it's a, a whole new realm uh, spiritually that we'll be in. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. And we'll be able to understand that passage once we get to heaven and see him and are like him. We'll be able to understand that uh, in ways that we can't even begin to imagine now. So God bless you and your five children. Angela, all you can do is you show them who Jesus is. You tell them about Jesus. Get them involved uh, in a church and um, and raise them to know that your Jesus is the source of the joy in your life. And um, they'll want your Jesus when it comes time for them to make it on their own. One thing I want to say, Angela, I'm not inferring that you're doing this, but I get this question so often from people um, here in the church and other places. Um, I know parents who are absolutely paralyzed with the fear that that their children will fall away or their children won't be Christians. And we can't do that. What we've got to do is we've got to trust God with our kids. We've got to realize he loves them more than we do. So we do what we can do. Um, in our church family, and this is true in every church family, in our church family, Angela, well, we have 
parents who love Jesus with all of their heart, and they've raised several children in the home, and and some of them love Jesus, and some of them don't. And it's nothing the parents did. They were raised in the same environment. So we, we've got to trust God with those kids. But don't let the devil cause you to lose the joy of being with Jesus um, because you're afraid that that uh, one of your children or more of your children won't become Christians. That's just something you gotta you gotta deal with. I've got a an unsaved son, um, and his children, my grandchildren in that family, are not being raised to know him. And um, you know, it's it's uh, sometimes overwhelmingly sad, um, and yet he's a great. Man, I mean, we, I love him, and he, he's he's a good guy. Uh, his kids and I, we we get along really, really well. Um, um, but uh, you know, God loves him more than I do. So what you do is you just pray, and you remain faithful, and you remain consistent in your walk. Make sure they see that Mom's Jesus is really the only way. To live a life that's filled with with meaning and passion. Um, I hope that makes sense to you, Angela. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Jennifer has a question about modalism. Is modalism heresy, and why? Um, first, let me say, modalism is a belief that there is one God, but that one God does not exist in Trinitarian form. In other words, we say three in one. Uh, one God, ever present, manifest in three persons, three distinct personalities, one distinct from the other. Um, and in this case, uh, it's like the Father modes into Jesus, Jesus modes into the Holy Spirit. And, and so it's like there's only one God and he just appears differently in different functions. That really, Jennifer... Um, messes with the character of God. And so I, modalism is, in my view, heresy. Now, I don't think any Christian, when we first get saved, I don't think we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't make sense. We look one plus one plus one equals three. And, and so it's very confusing. And since it doesn't make sense, the idea of modalism, just one God, that's why often you'll see um, uh, people referring to just the Father or just to Jesus or just to the Holy Spirit um, because that's the only way they can relate. But I think as we grow, remember, once we're truly saved and and, and we all get saved before we understand all these doctrinal issues, I think once we get saved, the Holy Spirit then leads us into that truth. So the man or the woman who is maybe currently a modalist because they don't understand, uh, as they seek the Lord, he will reveal himself to them. And the truths of our Bible will become um, um, readily, uh, they'll, they'll become aware of them. And they will grow in the grace and knowledge of God and who he is. So in that particular case, Jennifer, I believe it's heresy. You can't deny that the Holy Spirit is God. You cannot deny that Jesus is God. You cannot deny that the Father is God. And you also cannot deny that they are distinct and separate. Hard to understand? But at the same time, it's what the Bible teaches. The Father is called God. Jesus is called God. He refers to himself as God over and over and over. And the Holy Spirit is said to be God as well. When we start changing the character of God, the attributes of God, that's when we're in trouble. So, yes, I believe modalism is heresy. I think I have time for one more. Ravi says, do you have any tips for not looking at other people like they are worse than I am? I struggle with pride like that. Oh, Ravi, God bless you for your honesty. Um, Yeah, stay in the word. Stay with Jesus. Uh, Don't forget who you were. Don't forget what you've been rescued from. And um, humble yourself before God has to do it. And and this just is pride. I think sometimes, Ravi, we get saved and we, we get rid of some bad habits in our life and we look at somebody else, especially if they have the same bad habits that we've gotten rid of, and we look at them like, wow, what's wrong with you? 
We've got to be really, really careful. That is nothing more than pride. Ravi, here's a clue for you. Whenever you're looking out at somebody else, that's what I call the unholy spirit. That's your flesh. When the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, he's always going to be talking to you about you. And because of this kind of pride, you're not going to be able to see things uh, clearly. You're not going to be able to discern spiritual things because it's your flesh calling the shot. Jesus talked about um, having a beam in your eye and trying to get out the speck in somebody else's eye when he said, hey, before you start looking at the speck in my eye, how about taking that big old beam out of your eye? And that's a, a funny picture, but it makes a wonderful point. We've got to be sure that we're checking our own heart. And every time you start looking at somebody else and thinking that they're a mess or they're worse than you, you got to realize that is a combination of the enemy and your flesh. That's all it is. And so you've got to be able to deal with that. And you got to hate it. you got to hate it. Remember that Jesus loves them. And then one other tip, pray for them. Pray for them, and God will change your heart toward them. So, Ravi, thank you very, very much for that. Hey, appreciate the phone calls today and the questions. Uh, I love the fact that you tune in and we're able to to uh, be of some value to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You have been listening to the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Tomorrow, uh, I'll be teaching in the book of First Kings, Rehoboam dividing the kingdom of Israel into two separate groups. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.